sometimes on this journey I get lost in my mistakes It looks to me like weakness is a canvas for your strength And my story isn't over, my story's just begun And fail you won't define me, cause that's what my father does Come on We're going to be talking about partiality today And like I said uh, another word for partiality is favoritism, and uh, how significant this is in the Word of God. So partiality, but before we can talk about partiality, we need to talk about, and I heard it in, uh, it was Mark's prayer, about justice. I looked up in, uh, I spent a lot of time in this dictionary, it's the 1828 Webster Dictionary, because we all know that words or language corrupts over time. So I always go back to the 1828 dictionary to get good definitions. And uh, in that dictionary for justice, the, the first word that they gave for a definition is impartiality for justice, which I thought was interesting. They, it, the definition goes on to say equal distribution of right in existing opinions, a fair representation of facts representing the right and wrong of a given situation. So that's justice, justice. So in, in an essence, partiality is the opposite of justice. It's the opposite of justice. Partiality, and like I said, means favoritism. It's bias, favoring one side or one party more than another. It's an undue bias of the mind towards a party or a side, and it's apt to warp the judgment, right? It opposes truth and justice. It's playing favorites. In the King James Version, it's referred to as being a respecter of persons, a respecter of persons. A lot of us have heard the word cronyism. Does anybody know what cronyism means? It means appointing friends and associates to positions of authority without the proper regard for their qualifications. You know what I mean? So when you look at a lot of these, you know, these banana republics, third world nations, and even, you know, second world and first world nations, you have, uh, my wife and I were talking about it earlier, nepotism, where you start appointing people of your family in there. You start appointing friends, put them in high places. We see it in our own government more and more. And it's a, it's a firm indication of corruption. It's a firm indication. The wink and the nod. The wink and the nod. Does anybody remember the proverb that talks about he that winketh with his eye, he that teaches with his fingers? That's talking about this notion of Favoritism, partiality, right? Backdoor deals. Go to Leviticus chapter 19. Now, I think this is just a fascinating subject in the Word of God, and it really spoke loudly to me in our culture right now. You know, we hear the term uh, corruption, and, you know, we, we talk about corruption. Well, what is corruption? Well, it takes on a lot of different ways. We, you know, we talk about bribery, and I'll, I may be teaching on that, too. Bribery, but within that notion of corruption is this idea of partiality. It's huge. It's huge. A lot of times, you know, we're influenced by partiality. We don't even recognize it for such. And we'll talk about that in fellowship. But Leviticus chapter 19 and in verse 11, it says, Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. 
Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God. I am Yahweh. How about that? That puts a little personal touch on it. You know, God refers to himself by his name and he says, fear me. Fear your God. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. That's interesting, isn't it? That you would show partiality to the poor or partiality to the rich. And it talks about do not pervert justice. You see, partiality makes a mockery of justice. Showing favoritism to one side or another is, like I said, corruption. It's corruption. We, uh, we look at the news and we talk about Washington, D.C., and we talk about special interests. That is partiality and bribery, whenever you hear about that. In these verses, it talks about uh, not showing partiality to the poor or to the rich. Both are wrong. We have a culture now that gives lip service, and even more than that, to the poor. You know, the poor and downtrodden. But if you really look into it, nobody cares too much about the poor. You talk about it a lot. I mean, think about the whole political philosophy of communism. It was built on ostensibly caring for the poor. They didn't care for the poor. They cared for power and control. And that's how it works. But when I think about justice, the idea of justice, everybody knows the, the uh, lady justice, the statue, right? Blindfolded. Why is she blindfolded? So she can't see that a person is poor or rich or black or white. You see what I'm saying? That she can render judgment without those influences. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, Deuteronomy 1. Now, in, in Deuteronomy 1, Moses is recounting to the Israelites the time when he was dispensing uh, judgment for the children of Israel, and he was overwhelmed. I mean, morning to night, he was the judge. And then his father-in-law, Jethro, said, look, you're, you're doing this all wrong. You're going to wear yourself out. And so what did, what did Moses do? He appointed judges. He appointed judges to do the work, administer justice. So in verse 9, it says, At that time I said to you, you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as many as the stars in the sky. May Yahweh, the God of your father, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. You answered me, what you propose to do is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time, Hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly, judge fairly, whether the case 
is between both Israelites or between one of them and an alien, right? So even in dealing with, you know, non-Israelites, the idea was to deal with them fairly. Verse 17, do not show partiality in judging. You're both small and great alike. Now, this is important. Listen to this. Do not be afraid of any man, for judgment belongs to God. Judgment belongs to God. A nation, any nation that recognizes this is a nation that will be good and honest and righteous. Any nation that denies this will be corrupt. You see that? These judges were not to be respecters of persons. It's interesting when you consider how the fear of man, right, they're warned against fearing men and how that goes hand in hand with the respect of persons. Now, when I talk about fear of man, I think of Proverbs twenty-nine, twenty-five that says the fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whatever but whosoever trusts the Lord will be kept safe. So when we talk about fear of man, we're talking about fear of what man thinks, right? Of his displeasure, his scorn, his ridicule, that you're afraid of his judgment. You're afraid you're going to get canceled by cancel culture. So you stay in line. You keep within, you know, we talk about self-censorship. What is self-censorship? Well, you kind of figure out the rules, right? And the rules say, okay, well, I can't say anything bad about homosexuality. And I can't say anything bad about transgenderism. And and so you stop talking about those topics. You know, nobody has put you in any physical shackles and forced you to do their bidding, but they are keeping you within the swim lanes. Do you, you understand? You start conforming without even realizing it. That's pretty interesting. And we all have to check our, ourselves on that one. Is it the fear of man or the fear of God that we're concerned about? Right? Judgment belongs to God. And partiality perverts judgment. Why? Because I'm not looking to God, I'm looking to men. What do they think? And this is so important in this day and time. We have got to look to God and stop looking at men. Moses was warning these judges, stay away from this. Don't show bias to the poor. We see this in our culture in this knee-jerk deference towards social causes, Right? Don't show bias to the rich. We see this in, you know, the among the elites, the hedge fund managers and the Wall Street financiers, right? The power of influence, influence peddling. Judgment comes from God. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10 and look at verse 14. It says, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. That's important. You know, for a long time we hear, you know, the doctrine of God is not in control. Chris and I were talking about this yesterday. Perhaps in some technical aspects that's true, but my God is almighty God. All right? He's the God of the heavens and the earth. He's mighty. He's not a puny God. He's a big God. I always think of that scene. Anybody ever watch the Avengers? I remember that scene where, what's his name? What's the guy's name with the, no, uh, the brother of Thor? Loki. Loki goes up to Hulk, and he says, so Loki says, I'm a god, and Hulk just beats the snot out of him. (laughs) 
And Hulk, you know, Hulk doesn't really have really good skills, but he looks at him. He says, "Puny God, <laughs> <laughs> our God is not a puny God." Ah, uh, verse fifteen. Yet the Lord set His affections on your forefathers and loved them, and He chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. So, what does it say? Circumcise your hearts. It didn't tell them relax and enjoy the. You know, God's affection, he says, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. How about that? So here I am, I'm an Israelite, and I'm put in charge of a group of people, and I'm supposed to dispense judgment over them, who am I looking to as my example? God. God. Absolutely. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien. Loves the alien? You mean the non-Jew? The scandal. But that's what it says. Giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. That's great thinking right there. Huh? That's awesome. And it was interesting to me when I was putting this teaching together. You know, we talk about the Judeo-Christian ethic, right? This idea that, you know, that you you don't just take care of, you know, the the you know, the mighty and the wealthy. You take care of the downtrodden and the poor. I mean, it, it's so funny when I hear these social justice warriors talk about social justice like they invented it. You're hilarious. You didn't invent anything. This came about long before you came around. This is part of the law, was to take care of the, the unfortunates. This is part of the Christian ethic. Christians were taking care of people before it was cool, right? And I just think that's really important. For, throughout history, and this is easy to demonstrate, but throughout history... Cultures lived essentially by might makes right. That was how they lived. That if you had the might and you had the money and you had the power, you were the top dog. And that's how it was. But that's not how Christian communities, true Christian communities existed or Jewish communities. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy 16. Mankind left to his own devices will always fall back into might makes right. Always. It becomes a hierarchy of dominance and power. It is only the fear of the Lord that puts man on an equal footing, right? That we will all stand before the bar of God one day. That is the great equalizer. Isn't that something? I mean, think about that. That is huge. Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, it says, Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept bribes, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Now that's fascinating, I think. I mean, think about what goes on every single day in Washington, D.C. Every single day, it's glad-handing, it's passing money. Look, you do me this favor and I'll give you this money. These are our leaders. 
And then they get up there and they put their hand across their heart and they sing about, you know, home of the free and or home of the brave, land of the free. And it's all just ridiculous hypocrisy. It's amazing how a person can go into, I mean, just think about this. A person can go into office and do his stint of office, say, as, you know, as in Congress, for instance, and come out the other end a multi-multi-millionaire. How do you do that exactly? Because of all the bribes you're taking. Now listen to this, verse 20. Follow justice and justice alone. (laughs) How about that? Is that clear? Follow justice and justice alone. Why? Because you mix anything else in there and it will corrupt you. It will corrupt you. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Just as God judges impartially, so must the judges judges and leaders of men judge impartially. Partiality perverts judgment. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that in our politics. I mean, think about the influence of our politics on our judgment, right? We need to render righteous judgments. That means, God, what do you think about this particular issue? Oh, but everybody else in my political party thinks this. And God's like, so? God truly wants us to be independent thinkers. And I'll tell you what, I see Christians go off the deep end regularly when it comes to their politics. They get caught up in these culture wars. Now, certainly, you know, I look at the culture and I say, well, this is right and this is wrong and... And then this group tends to fall down on the right side of this issue, and this group tends to fall down. And so then you get kind of corralled into, well, being Christian is synonymous with being with this group. Do you see what I'm saying? It's very subtle, and pretty soon you wake up, and, you know, you're advocating one, uh, uh, you know, a godless position. What's the term that you use? The godless right. Corey talks about the godless right, how the right has adopted a lot of things that are just unbiblical. I'm a conservative. I'll tell everybody that. But yeah, but I think, you know, the Bible teaches conservatism, but it also teaches the other side, too. I don't want to get into that. What I want to say is, is that we have got to go to God. We have to see what God's word says. You know, you look around us, the media, the our judges, our governments, have been bought and paid for. Churches, yeah, absolutely. And what did we just read about? What does it say about bribes? They blind the eyes of the wise and twist the words of the righteous. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's epidemic in our culture. Um, There was a writer back, you know, she was big back in the 1950s, Ayn Rand. She referred to it as the aristocracy of pull. The aristocracy of pull. That is manipulation. She made this statement. I just have to read it to you. Now, she was a rank unbeliever, but she had a lot of truth. And she said, when you see that trading is done not by consent, but by compulsion, when you see that in order to produce, you need to obtain permission from men who produce nothing. When you see that money is flowing to those who deal, not in goods, but in favors. When you see that men get richer by graft and by pull than by work, 
and your laws don't protect you against them, but protect them against you. When you see corruption being rewarded and honesty becoming a self-sacrifice, you may know that your society is doomed. How about that? And I'm looking at that in our culture today. It sure is. It's just amazing. You know, I I think about Isaiah in in the first chapter of the book of Isaiah where he prophesied of Jerusalem, and it could be equally said for Washington, D.C., your whole head is injured, your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. That's what the Word of God says about Washington, D.C. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, as bad as Jerusalem got, and it got bad at times, Washington, D.C. is orders of magnitude worse. So go to Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs 24. You go to Washington, D.C., you drive around, it's a lovely city, beautiful. But I think about what Jesus said to the Pharisees, you whited sepulchers. Outside is beautiful, but inside is full of dead men's bones. That is D.C., Washington, D.C., Proverbs 24. Look in verse 23. These also are sayings of the wise. To show partiality in judging is not good. Whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent, People will curse him and nations denounce him. But it will go well with those who convict the guilty and the rich blessing will come upon them. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. That's something, you know, and, and I hear it every day where people who are absolutely guilty of heinous crimes and are set free and other people who did the right thing. I think about this poor kid and, Uh, what was that, Kenosha, who was defending himself from a mob and used his gun and killed two people who were attacking him with deadly force, and he's sitting in a jail cell right now. It's unbelievable. Go to 2 Chronicles chapter 19, 2 Chronicles 19, verse 7. 2 Chronicles 19, 7. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. I love that. I love that. Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge, Judge carefully, for with the Lord... Our God, there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. How about that? It's it's so huge. It's so huge. Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. That'd be kind of a nice way to, you know, say goodbye to somebody. Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Most people wouldn't know what that means. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. You want a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. When I talk about the fear of the Lord, what do I mean by that? Jake, what do you think? When we talk about the fear of the Lord, what are we talking about? That's kind of an important subject. What do you think? And his, that's very good, by the way. But you also acknowledge that he sees everything that you do, right? You see what I'm saying? Now think about that. If, if you didn't have that, right, in your thinking, if you didn't realize that God sees everything that you do and that you're accountable to him, what might you do? You might think that you can get away with stuff, right? Why not? Right. That's right. And, you know, when it talks about walking in darkness, that's what it means, that you are not walking in the fear of the Lord. And that's hugely important. I think about teenagers, right? Teenagers, you know, they get away from being around the parent. What do they do? Fall into mischief, right? Well, some do. Not my boys. (laughs) They fall into mischief. Well, that's what happens to 
the human being who doesn't think that he has the oversight of his heavenly parent, God, that God is watching over him. That's why it's so awesome to say, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. It's, it's easy. I mean, have you ever noticed it's easy to fall into the course of the world, right? You're just kind of, you go into overdrive, it's automatic. Pretty soon you're doing stuff and not even thinking about what you're doing. That's why it's so important to have brothers and sisters around and the word, right? To remind you, God's watching, right? It's just, it's big. It's so big. Go to Psalm chapter 82, Psalm 82. Now this Psalm, by the way, was quoted by Jesus in the Gospels. The Pharisees accused him of blasphemy because being a man, he made himself a God by calling himself the Son of God, remember? And Jesus said, doesn't your scripture say ye are gods? Well, let's read this chapter or this psalm because it's very interesting. Uh, psalm 82, verse 1, it says, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the, quote, gods, unquote. Gods, I thought there was only one God. Well, let's look into this. What is he talking about? Verse 2, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Say law. Defend the cause of the weak and fatherless. Maintain the rights of the poor and oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Are we talking about heavenly gods or are we talking about men here? Men. This doesn't mean that God wants everybody to run out and join a social cause, but there are men here that are within, you know, within their sphere, they're supposed to be taking care of the poor and downtrodden, right? And they're not. And this is, a, this is an important idea. The Bible refers to leaders who are accountable to God, taking care of God's people, refers to them as small g gods. I, I think that's interesting, isn't it? Verse 5, these rulers know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Verse 6, I said, you are gods. That's the line that Jesus quoted, right? You are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. How about that? Why? Because they weren't walking in the fear of God. Verse 8, rise up, O God. This is talking about Almighty God here. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. So, so God expects these men that he has entrusted with oversight to do the right thing, to act wisely and with compassion. Judgment belongs to God. Now I want you to go to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. Romans 2 is an exceptional chapter because it really shows that when it comes to judgment, God is completely impartial, absolutely impartial. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things, right? It doesn't mean that it's a tit-for-tat arrangement. You know, I judge you for, for being a liar. I'm made a liar because I judged you for it. It means that... I'm sinful. I'm a sinful person. What kind of judge am I, right? You know, my judgments, you know, let's not become too, uh, you know, proud of our judgments as men because we're all sinners. That's why we have to look to God for judgment. 
See, Satan's always trying to get us to do the right thing, but the wrong reason. You know, I think about, you know, and we've talked about that in this fellowship, these sanctimonious do-gooders in our culture. These moralists who run around lecturing everybody with their newfound values, right? They learn something new and then they start, you know, holding it over other people's heads. They're virtue signaling, right? Virtue signaling. Look at me. Look at how virtuous I am. Or even rather, look at me. Look at how more virtuous I am than you. That's what it's all about, right? It's people who are going around posing. Well, God ponders the heart, doesn't he? God looks on the heart. You're not fooling him. You may fool other human beings, but you can't fool God. He sees what's in your heart. Verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment is against all who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, passes judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself against the day of wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And here it is. Listen to this. Verse 6. God will give to each person according to to what he has done. There's the great leveler, the great leveler. You take the mightiest man that ever lived, and you take the poorest and most downtrodden man that ever lived, and they are absolutely equal before God. Is that awesome? They are absolutely equal before God. God doesn't care about your paycheck. He doesn't care about your influence. He doesn't care about all these things that men care for. You know, in the Old Testament, they used to talk to about the, the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan, right? These giant trees. And it was always with a mocking tone because God doesn't care. He doesn't care how big you think you are. He doesn't care. God cares about truth and sincerity. Verse 7, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he gives eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone that does good, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And here it is, for God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. And now you got to think about that. This was the, the idea behind the Jews, right? The Jews felt like, you know, God, God and me are like this, right? Because I'm a Jew. I'm his favorite. And uh, so Paul here is taking them down a notch and showing them new, no, you're not as much of a favorite as you think you are. I was thinking about this section here that God does not show favoritism. There is a, a whole theology that talks about how God foreordains certain people who are going to go to heaven and other people who are going to go to hell. And it's all based on his, quote unquote, sovereign will. Sounds like favoritism to me, doesn't it? What, why would God, I mean, either that or God is just completely arbitrary. And what did we just read earlier? that God will give to every person according as he has done. Isn't that interesting? 
So this whole notion of sovereign will goes right out the window in this respect. God doesn't just arbitrarily choose people or choose his favorites. Of course, when I bring that up in conversation with these sort of people, oh my God, they go into hyperdrive. Verse 12. Now listen to this. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who do what? Obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, of course, we're not talking Christ here. We haven't gotten to Christ yet. In Paul's thesis in Romans, he's working his way to Christ. But this is just showing the plain judgment of God for all humanity, all humanity. The beautiful thing is he goes on to say, nobody can live up to that standard, but we are righteous through Christ. That's the beautiful thing. But anyway, verse 12, it says, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secret through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Verse 15 or 17, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, And this can also be applied to Christians these days. If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, if you say, hey, I'm a dispensationalist, and I understand that Jesus is not God, and I also understand that the dead are not alive, right? You can tuck that in your belt. You can say, I'm more righteous than them. No, you're not. No, you're not. Verse 18, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you've been instructed. And if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have the law in the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others. Are you teaching yourself? Look at verse 25. Circumcision, right? That outward sign of the inward reality, you know, of the supposed to be the inward faithfulness to God, but it, would, it became a sign, you know, people actually took boldness in their circumcision. But here, verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you were not circumcised. You know, you Jew who's lording your circumcision over the Gentile. And if those who are not circumcised, the Gentiles, keep the law's requirement, Will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? I mean, think about the rationale there. I think that's great. You, quote-unquote, righteous ones who are disobeying the law, you know, you think you're far superior to this other group of people, but they're doing the law. Doesn't that make them more superior to you? I mean, if we're going to talk righteousness? Yeah, uh, that's how it was. You know, the Jews had this notion of favored nation status with God. Paul was disabusing them of this notion. Verse 27, the one who is not circumcised physically yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, and not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. How about that? Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that's what we're talking about here, right? Turn to Acts, Acts chapter 10, Acts 10. We know this story. This is Peter and Cornelius. 
And Peter's speaking in verse 28, 10:28. he says, He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. And that, that is absolutely true for us. That is just not our place. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me, this was an angel, and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. How about that? I love that. Isn't that the nature of man to say, I'm an American. I'm better than you, right? Or... I'm white, and I'm better than you. Or I'm black, and I'm better than you. You see what I'm saying? This whole comparative thing, and it it just racks the human race. People trying to be some superior. Did you know that, uh, you know, the Muslim, you know, when they say Allah Akbar, and they say that God is great, that's not what it means. God is greater. Our God is greater. Isn't that something? Our God is greater. It's this whole thing, this rivalry that goes on in the human race. So here you have Peter who gets this truth. And for a Jew, this was a tough one. This was a tough one, right? Because they were raised from children to be partial in their judgment, that we are better than them. Even though if you read the Old Testament law, what's it saying? Take care of the alien. Take care of the alien, right? Um But then you get to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but uh, here you got Peter. And Peter's hanging out with the Gentiles. He understands his freedom in Christ. He's hanging out. You know, he's got this idea of the one body. He's hanging out with the Gentiles. They're they're having food. They're having a good time. They're laughing and joking. And then all of a sudden, you got a group of, you know, Christians come down from Jerusalem. And these are the Christians that are, you know, kind of on the legalistic side, still got their head in the law. And they come down, and, and Peter starts looking around. He's like, hmm, what are they going to think? You know, that fear of man's opinion. And so what does he do? He separates himself from these brothers in Christ. And they're not even Gentiles, by the way. I refer to them as Gentiles. They're, they're believers. They're part of the one body. He separates himself from them and goes over here and hangs out with these Jewish Christians. And, you know, it's interesting because I always hear that this record taught from the point of view of how hypocritical that is. And it is hypocritical. But the sin isn't hypocrisy. The sin is partiality. Do you see what I'm saying? That he's shunning these people in the one body for other people in the one body. Do you get that? So what is he doing? He's being divisive. And Paul called him out. Paul called him out for his partiality. He said to Peter in front of them all, look, have you forgotten that God is not a respecter of persons, Peter? And have you forgotten 
that we are all one in Christ? Have you forgotten this? I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. It's really the, his exact words were knowing that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, we Jews, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. That that's what we all did. We put our faith in Christ. We're all saved through Christ. So by you being partial, what are you doing? You're turning your back on Christ. I was thinking about Colossians where it says there is neither Greek or Jew, male or female, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but we but Christ is all and in all. It's Christ. It's Christ. That's what being a Christian is all about. It's Christ. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Timothy 5.21 says, I charge you, Timothy, Paul saying this, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. Nothing out of favoritism. You know, I think about that because, you know, not everybody is my cup of tea. I know that. But there are certain people that I like. And there are certain people I like less and some people I don't particularly like at all. I mean, that's completely natural, right? But we're in the one body. It's bigger than my little personal likes and dislikes. And we'll, we'll get to that here in shortly. But this is bigger. I'll give you a hint. It's love. It's God's love, right? Let's go to James chapter 2. James 2. I always think about, you know, when you read through the the Gospel of John, and and uh, and it, it says in the Gospel of John, the disciple whom the Lord loved, which I just get a kick out of, because the disciple whom the Lord loved was John, right? The guy between the thumbs. Uh, but you know, even Jesus, uh, you know, I don't know if it's it's like kids that why mom loved me the most, right? I don't know if it was like that with with John and Jesus, but I'm sure that Jesus had a had a certain affection for John. But you can have friendships without being partial. Does that make sense to everybody? It's, it's important. But anyway, James chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, Here's a good seed for you, but say to the poor man, hey, just go over there and sit down. Yeah, sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves? And listen to this, and become judges of evil thoughts. Judges of evil thoughts. Now you think about that. Think about that. For us to make judgments like that, right? To deem one person of more value and another person of less value based on their finances? or whatever else, that makes you a judge or of evil thoughts. How about that? There was a person that used to be in our fellowship and, you know, a long time ago, and I, I just didn't like this guy. <laughs> he was kind of a country bumpkin. Remember that guy in our fellowship? And Chris was always getting on me about because she was like, you know, your dislike for him is just so obvious. And I'm like, I can like and dislike anybody I want, right? It's my right in Christ. Well, no, it's not. It is not. I was wrong. Verse, 50, uh, verse 5, I'm sorry. Listen, my dear brothers, 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? I mean, here you got this little dude over here, and God cherishes that guy, cherishes him. And this guy over here is a pompous ass. Do you see what I'm saying? He's got all the rings on his fingers. He's all rich. But, you know, God's got real problems with his heart. Verse 6, but you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourselves, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. How about that? So think about that. When we are walking in partiality, we are not walking in love. We are not walking in love. And this is hugely important. I think in Romans 14 where it says, Who are you to judge another man's servant? Before his master he stands or falls. Listen to this. This was a story that came out in 1979. Everybody knows who uh, Mahatma Gandhi is, right? Well, do you know when he was a student, he was actually considering becoming a Christian? Isn't that interesting? He was considering being a Christian. He had read the four Gospels, and he was moved by them. This one Sunday, he came to a local church, and he decided to see the pastor and ask him about how to get saved by Jesus Christ. But when he entered the church which was, by the way, completely populated by white Europeans, right? The usher refused to give him a seat, told him to go worship with his own people. He left and he never went back. He said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain Hindu. Now, isn't that something? I just thought, man, that gave me goosebumps. I mean, the course of history changed on what some dumb usher said at the doorway or really, more importantly, what was in the heart of some dumb usher who wasn't tracking with his faith, his true faith. We're seeing a lot of racial partiality creeping back into the churches. You know, unfortunately, in this country, because of the stain of slavery, there has remained this separation between the races, both in the North and the South. And then after, of course, the slavery, there were the Jim Crow laws, and you had these black churches and you had white churches. I remember when I was a kid and I read the book, To Kill a Mockingbird. Has anybody read that book? Well, there's, there's this one scene where Atticus Finch, he's the lawyer, you know, the, the protagonist of the story. And he goes to a black church and he walks in there. He was defending this black man against, you know, false accusation of rape. Right. And he walks in there and the whole congregation came to their feet out of respect for Atticus Finch. And it's just such a moving section. I mean, it's, I get choked up every time I, I read it. And the kids are like, you know, his two kids are like, what's going on here? And, they, and the woman, their they're maid, just <laughs> totally shut up because he was a great man in their eyes, right? But I remember when I read that and I was just thinking, and I wasn't even, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic, but I was like, that's odd that you would have black churches and white churches, I mean, aren't they all God's children, right? And that's how odd it is. That's how strange it is. And true Christians have always seen through this. And I, I think of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was German. Now, they didn't come across a lot of blacks in Germany, but he came over to this country and he attended the Riverside Theological Seminary in, in uh, 
Manhattan and found it to be dead spiritually, absolutely dead. I mean, these people, you know, to call themselves Christians was a real stretch. They didn't believe in God at all. In fact, they spent their time trying to disprove the Bible. And so you know what he did? He went down to Harlem and went to a black church and loved it and kept going to this church every Sunday. Why? Because he found the Spirit of God there and gospel music, and it nurtured his soul. And, and see, that's what it is. So we've made some great strides. But one of the things that we're seeing right now is we're in retrograde with this critical race theory, that all the desegregation is being turned on its head. And now everybody's starting to segregate once again and call it good. That's right. And this is nothing more than the sin of partiality, right? They just call it social justice. It's not social justice. It's partiality. It's segregation based on the color of one's skin. I think about Proverbs 14, 12 that says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end leads to death, or in this case, division, right? Churches are adopting this critical race theory, and it's just wrong. Why is it wrong? Because it violates the one body. We're not supposed to be looking at skin color or culture or anything else. We're supposed to be looking at Christ as all and in all, period. You see that? Go to Luke chapter 7, Luke 7. I'm coming towards the end here. It's a little long, but I think it's important. Luke 7, and in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in the town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. I mean, you really get the picture here. And and it just melts your heart, doesn't it? That this woman who had led this sinful life was, you know, she was giving, I mean, that those tears. Do you know this? This is pretty cool, Jake, that what they would do is they have a uh, this alabaster, it's a type of stone, this, this little box. And throughout their entire life, whenever they would, you know, be sad or whatever, weep, they would put that tear into, you know, put a tear in this box. And it was their most valuable possession, right? So she had this, they calls it a box. I think it's probably more of a jar, but whatever. Anyway, it was filled with her tears of, over a lifetime. And you know what she's doing with those tears? She was pouring them on Jesus's feet and washing his feet with her hair. And in the, in the, in the Oriental culture, a woman's hair is her greatest, that's her glory. So she is absolutely debasing herself and washing his feet with the most, the most precious thing that she owns. I, I mean, this is huge. This is a huge thing. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped him with her hair, kissed him and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That woman is a sinner. Now, how about that? And that's hard-hearted religion there. Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. I'm sure he was being all, you know, obsequious and, you know, he's having these horrible thoughts in his heart. But to Jesus, he was probably, yeah, sure, teacher, tell me. And verse 41 uh, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. 
Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with with her hair. By the way, that was customary in that culture that, you know, everybody wore sandals and it was dusty. So when you got to somebody's house, it was custom that you would have a servant who would wash his feet. But this Pharisee, this hard-hearted Pharisee, didn't wash Jesus' feet. So he's saying, look, I came to your house. You didn't wash your feet, my feet, but she's washing him my feet with her hair. Verse 45, you did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say to themselves, who is, you know, who is this who forgives sin? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Isn't that beautiful? And that's that partiality that we tend to, you know, see ourselves as superior, you know. And we look at somebody who's going through a tough patch in their life as being inferior. And we just can't think that way. We cannot think that way. I mean, one, one thing that is a great equalizer is we are all sinners. We're all sinners. And if you try to say that you're not, you're a hypocrite and a liar. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We are all sinners. So let's get past that and and help each other with humility. And let's not say, well, I'll help you up to this point, but I'm not going to help you after that. You know, or, you know, I'm not going to help with that sin. That's too gross for me or whatever. <laughs> Go to First Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1. First Peter 1. Look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace that has been given to you when, you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work, impartially live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. How about that? Isn't that great? That we have got to conduct ourselves. We are strangers in a strange land. We have to keep that in mind. This is not my home. I'm just passing through. I'm keeping my eye on that hope, on that new city, right? And uh, you uh, go to John chapter 7, John 7. And in verse 24, it says, stop judging by mere appearances, but judge right judgment. Judge right judgment. We got to stop looking at what people are wearing, what, you know, what kind of car they're driving, what kind of influence they have, you know, all these things, all this stuff. But exactly. That's exactly right. We got to get past all that stuff. We got to love others with God's love, God's love. That's that's just huge important, uh, hugely important. You think about that. Well, what is the love of God? Well, the love of God is that I love what God loves. I love what God loves. And I love who God loves. You see what I'm saying there? And I value others with what how God values them. That's how I've got to think. When I depart from that, I'm outside the love of God. I heard this definition of love. Love is the act of concern for the growth growth in life of what we love. We're we're there. And I think about the verse, you don't have to turn there, but in John 13, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love 
one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love has no partiality in it. None. You are loving what God loves, and God loves us all. Isn't that huge? So anyway, that's what I wanted to share. So let me go ahead and finish with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. Father, we thank you that we can just understand the greatness of this teaching. That Father, that you love us with just a profound love and your judgments are impartial. That Father, you show no favorites, but God, that your love is huge. Now, Father, you are just as intimate to me as you could ever be. Thank you, Father, that we can go out and love others with that just amazing love. Father, thank you that we can have proper judgments before you. We can think clearly about things. And that, Father, that we can just be righteous men and women and kids. So I thank you for these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.